Hi there and welcome to The Brave. I'm your host Beth and Vincent and The Brave is a podcast about the people, companies, systems and ideas that are contributing to creating a better future. In all honesty, the podcast is an excuse for me to talk to very interesting people about very interesting things and share it with you. And if you weren't aware, we also have a newsletter that I probably should bang on a bit more about. We're over on Substack, or I'm over on Substack. Um, It's thebrave.substack.com, and the newsletter really covers very similar themes to the podcast. It's bi-weekly, so it means it slots in nicely with the podcast schedule. So one week you'll get a podcast, next week you'll get a newsletter. And it also contains some really interesting links from things around the interwebs that I've gone, huh, that's pretty cool or interesting. So yeah, check it out. Let me know what you think. But back to today's podcast. And I've been interviewing April Dunford. And if you're around on kind of tech, marketing, Twitter, you'll have heard of April. She is the positioning expert. And I am, you know, my day job is in marketing. I'm a marketing consultant. So this is really, you know, up my street. Wanted to talk to April kind of from a professional (laughs) development opportunity. But also, I think we're about to enter into a new stage of the brand, a new stage of marketing, a new kind of era, because consumers are very smart now and we're very attuned to marketing. We've all been kind of, you know, retargeted to death online. We've all kind of seen brands come out with big, I guess, greenwashing statements. Some of them are truer than others. But, you know, this kind of focus on sustainability and value and the why behind your business. And to be perfectly honest, I think everyone is maybe a bit bored of that now. And we're at a real transition point in creating kind of the brands and the companies of the future, because ultimately that's what marketing is about. It's about creating companies, creating revenue, building up businesses. So I wanted to talk to April really about her work on positioning, which is really important and really interesting, but also about kind of what comes next for brands. You know, what comes next for us as marketeers, as kind of marketing professionals, but also as consumers, what can we expect? So I'll let April take it away. Hope you enjoy this episode and thanks so much for tuning in. So I'm April. Uh, I spent the first part of my career, like 25 years, being a repeat vice president of marketing at a series of startups. I think I did seven in total. And the reason there's so many, because then some people look at me and say, why so many, April? And I'm like, well, Um, For me, the repeating pattern was I would join the startup usually as the vice president of marketing and the first really senior marketing hire. Our job was to kind of figure out how to generate all the leads so we could grow. We'd grow really quickly and then we'd get acquired. (laughs) Then I'd be stuck at the big company for a couple of years. Um, And then I'd extract myself from there and go do the next one. So I did that kind of rinse and repeat a bunch of times. And then... um, after the last one, I thought, you know what, it's some time for something different. So I decided I wanted to do consulting. And specifically, I um, I do positioning work, which is a really niche specific thing. Um, and even more niche, like I, I work with tech companies. I only work with B2B tech companies. I generally work with companies that are what I would call kind of growth stage, like more than a couple million revenue, but you know, generally not huge, huge. Uh, although I do some stuff with big companies once in a while, but that's kind of my sweet spot. And uh, yeah, and positioning's my jam. Yes, and you've got an excellent book out, obviously awesome, which I've read and tried to put a lot into practice. We were just chatting before the recording about uh, the difficulties of getting stakeholders on board with because positioning, I think, 
lots of people think like, oh, you just write your positioning statement, stick it up on the board, let's go. But it's it's an involved process. It is. And, you know, it's, I get a lot of people come to me and they'll say, well, who owns positioning? Because we're just going to assign that to them and then they'll just do it <laughs> and then it'll be done. And it, unfortunately, it's harder than that. Uh, so if you think about it, like positioning kind of defines who do we compete against? How are we different? What is our differentiated value for customers? Which customers are we trying to go after? What is the market we intend to win? Like, that's some pretty big deal stuff. <laughs> and so you can imagine if, you know, I worked at a company and we are, you know, let, let's say we define ourselves as email and we're going after SMBs. Like, for me, even as the vice president of marketing, I don't get to just say, you know what, we're not going to be that anymore. We're going to be chat and we're going after large businesses. Okay. Everyone okay with that? <laughs> right. That like the CEO would just say, like, who is this crazy person? Um, so, um, so because it's such a strategic thing, it has to be a team sport. Like we have to get everyone together and so that, you know, that includes the CEO, it includes head of sales, head of product, head of customer success and marketing. And we're all going to get together. And what we really need from positioning is we need clarity and we need alignment. So we need to be clear on what it is, but we all need to be clear in the same way <laughs> so that we're all running towards the same goal. And that's hard. Yeah, having kind of gone through the process myself, it's almost like you're asking existential questions about the company that there's no kind of right or wrong answer to it. It's, it's like we've just got to pick the best path based on the information we have. Um, but I'm really interested in kind of your experience with startups because, I mean, this is a global phenomenon. We're seeing so many startups kind of come out to market at the moment, especially probably because of the pandemic and people either see new opportunities or, you know, have been made redundant and looking to do something new. And there's just so much competition out there. And I was just wondering, because I was thinking about this the other day, what, what happens in a market if everyone has very similar positioning and everyone has very similar kind of secret source or USPs? How do you differentiate when almost you're all copycats of each other? We see it a lot in categories like email or CRMs and things like that. What can you do? Well, so here, here's how this works. Like, you know, let, let, and let's take CRM as an example, because I think that's a really good one. So if you look at CRM, you might say, my gosh, there's, you know, first of all, you've got Salesforce, giant, giant company in that market, absolutely dominates it. Um, it, it you know, and then there's a thousand other little CRMs. Like, if, I feel like I learn a new one every week. Um, but here's the flip side of looking at that. CRM market is massive, absolutely massive. Like everybody needs a CRM. And and then look, let's look at Salesforce. Like, does Salesforce have any weaknesses? Well, yeah. <laughs> Anybody that's used it could give you a laundry list of things that they dislike about Salesforce. Um, it, that's not to say that they're easy to beat. They're not. I mean, there's a lot of reasons you would pick them, even if you don't like the UI or you don't like the pricing or you don't like the way they integrate with marketing tools or whatever it is your problem is. Um, but what it means is there's a lot of landscape there where there's opportunity because it's a big, big, big market. So, it, you know, if you dig into the CRM market, there's all kinds of companies that are reaching significant size 
peeling off a piece of that market and saying, look, we're not trying to be CRM for everybody. We're trying to be just CRM for lawyers or, you know, CRM for accountants, or we're just CRM for this, or we're a combination of CRM plus three other things, but only for these kinds of companies. And that's where the opportunity is. So, you know, while on the surface, it may look like, gosh, we've got this horrible crowded market. There are lots of sub-markets within that gigantic market that are still very, very big, where there's almost no competition, where someone could, you know, carve off a piece and say, there's nobody here but us. And, and we can become a hundred million revenue company just playing in this patch. And so there's a lot of that. Um, so, so, so that's one thing. The second thing is that one thing to keep in mind is this, if you're, if you work at a startup, and I think it's this very important sort of thought experiment to have, because lots of times I'll have companies come to me um, and, you know, they're making a million or 2 million revenue and they come to me and they're like, you know, we're just not that differentiated. <clears throat> like you, you look at all the competitors, we, we kind of look the same. Uh, we, our messaging is all the same. We, uh, you know, we're all the same. And, uh, and, and, you know, we're trying to figure out how to grow this business and, and how do we do it when everyone looks just like us? And, and my comeback to that is like, you're making a million revenue. Like you're selling companies every day. So customers don't think you're the same. Customers pick you for a reason. <laughs> like they had all these other choices, including Salesforce, including everyone else. And they picked you. They did a short list, they did an evaluation, and they picked you. And so why? <laughs> why? They could have not picked you. If you if your product really was such a dog, you'd be making zero revenue. You'd never win any business. Yeah, that's such a good point. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> so you're out there winning deals every day. Why do you win those deals? That's my question. Why do you win those deals? So in the work that I do, when we're trying to, when we're trying to really figure out the positioning, you know, we kind of start with that customer perspective. So we say, okay, like if I think about my best fit customers, like the folks that really love me, the folks that don't churn, the folks that I closed really easily, like they looked at other stuff and they picked mine like bang, like they, you know. So if I look at them, how do I get into their head and look at how they made that evaluation? So, so first I got to know, what were they doing before I showed up? So what was status quo in there? Were they using another CRM or were, or were they doing things manually with spreadsheets and things? Or, you know, what were they doing? And then what happened that made them get up in the morning and say, I can't do this anymore. I need to do this in another way. Um, and so what's that all about? And then, you know, they made a short list because business buyers, they make a short list almost always. They don't just pick the first thing that crossed their path. You know, they'll do their research. They do, you know, they're way late in the sales process before they call you or download your demo or do whatever. So they went and looked at a whole bunch of things. What made their short list? So what else did they look at? And then they picked you. Why? And importantly, they didn't pick the other guys. If you can get your head around that, then you'll know what to position around. But most of the time, you know, a lot of the times we've got companies where, you know, 
maybe we don't have a lot of interaction with customers. Maybe we have a zero touch sales model. Maybe we don't, you know, we've never asked ourselves these questions. We've just been out there selling. Um, but, but, you know, we, we need to kind of back it up and, and say, okay, like customers are picking us all the time. Why, what kind of customers against who, if we can answer those, then we can get to the nut of where, where are we better why are we better and who are we better for? And then we can really hone our positioning in on that and, and work to get a whole pipeline full of those people that just pick us every time. That's what we want. Yeah. And I think that requires a lot of empathy, though, with the customer to kind of get into their headspace, to kind of understand their frustrations or their unique kind of job pressures so I used to think that, right? So I used to, you know, when I came in as vice president marketing, I would go and I would do all these customer interviews. And so for, that would be my first 30 days. I just sit down talking to customers and I'd be trying to figure that out, like crawl inside their head. Like, what are they, you know, what are they like? And so one thing that was interesting, and this was very consistent, every job I had is just how consistent those customer interviews were. Like, it's not like you know, for most startups, it's not like you're selling a wildly different customers. Like customers are picking you for a reason. And then it's not a lot of reasons. It's like two or three reasons. <laughs> and it's the same. Like, it doesn't take that many customer interviews before you start seeing a pattern. Mm. Second thing is that if you have salespeople, your salespeople know a lot. Your salespeople know what the status quo was in the account. The salespeople know who else is on the short list because that's just part of your sales process to say, who else are you looking at? And the salespeople generally know why they picked you. What they don't know is how to put that together into a framework that's useful for marketing and everyone else in the company. And if nobody comes and asks them that structured set of questions, that information isn't necessarily flowing back to everyone in the company either. This is why we actually need a, a, like a, a structured positioning exercise and that exercise needs to include those folks so we can pull it out of them. <laughs> and so instead of just walking, like if I just walked into the sales team and say, why does everyone love us? I'm not sure they could answer that question. But if I went into this, walked into the sales team and said, what's status quo in the accounts we, we close? Mm-hmm. Like, and, then, and then if I asked them, who do we compete with? They know the answer to that. If I understand that, then I can have the intellectual exercise that says, okay, if this is who I got to beat, what have I got that they don't have? And what's the value of those features that I have that they don't have? And I can get to value from that, even if I don't, you know, embark on a, on a giant customer research exercise. So do you think marketeers make things too complex sometimes? Because I read your book and I was like, this is a very simple it's a very smart process but I can actually see how I can follow this whereas often you know with like marketing textbooks and strategy books you're like huh what how do I put this into action so do you do you think kind of we're overcomplicating things that are just you know about clarity at the end of the day sometimes sometimes I do so one thing is like I you know I think we're you know when I started marketing nobody cared about data everybody was doing you know spray and pray kind of brand marketing, like we'll run the ads and they must be working because sales are good, you know, and no one could measure anything. Like, 
And then I think we we swung towards data, which I think was a very good thing. You know, like it was like, bring me the data, bring me the data. But sometimes I feel like we've gone a little crazy on the data. And it's like, well, you know, I can't answer this question who my competitors are unless I unless I do an interview with every single customer I have and I need to cover all of the edge cases. And it's like, well, you know, from a positioning perspective, I don't need my positioning to work for every single weird one-off competitor that crosses my path. I need it to work for the bulk of them, right? For the 80% case. And, and I can get that from talking to the sales team, easy. So, so I do think sometimes we're a little crazy with the data. The other thing is that um, we have a lot of tools at our disposal in marketing and it's hard sometimes to know which tool is useful in what situation. So for example, I think that a lot of persona work, for example, is useless. And, and, and marketers spend a lot of time on persona work that they don't actually use for anything. Like it's like an intellectual experiment. Like we need to know because we need to know. But then it doesn't actually impact any of the marketing stuff we're doing. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I had a real breakthrough moment on persona stuff when I read this book called, um, well, there's this book called The Challenger Sale. And then there's a follow-on book called The Challenger Customer. But The Challenger Customer was a real aha moment for me because um, what they what they did was this great big study and they looked at complex sales deals where, you know, it's it's an enterprise software deal. So the buying team, you know, there's five or six people need to get agreement in order to make a purchase. So in software, we always have multiple personas we got to worry about. Um, but this was like the extreme case. They're looking at like, you know, it's a $10 million deal. I got to sell IT plus line of business, plus the boss, plus the CEO, plus, 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 you know. So they looked at all of that. And what they looked at was in the successful deals, how did it work? And the utterly shocking <laughs> for me thing there was basically in the deals that worked, you uh, the, the team focused on selling to the champion in the account, whoever that persona was. And it tended to be consistent for, you know, if I'm selling CRM, the champion is the vice president of sales, let's say, let's, as an example, like, let's say I sell CRM, the person that's generally championing this deal is the vice president of sales. Like what, basically what their data showed is you can focus all of your energy on that champion in the account and not worry about all the other personas. And I was like, my head exploded. Yeah, that is a bit mind-blowing. That's such good timing. I've been doing a load of persona work this week and I'm like, oh, okay, that's really interesting. I spent literally years of my life <laughs> working up. But when I looked back at it, when I looked at what we actually ended up doing, like we couldn't market to all those personas on the homepage. So who did we pick? We picked the champion, right? We yeah. couldn't build a sales deck for every persona. So we started with the champion. We might've had other ones for the other personas. Did they ever get used? No, right? So what we did do was we worked a little bit on how do we arm the champion to sell other people? Like, you know, if you're pitching this to your boss, here's a bunch of good things to think about. If you are if you got to get this through purchasing, here's some stuff that could help you. But so that thing, like, you know, again, I come across these companies now, they're doing loads and loads and loads of persona work. But then I say, look, like, 
we're going to have to pick one for the website. So who's your champion? And they'll say, oh, well, it's obviously this. And it's like, okay, well, if you're building materials and everything else, who's it for? Well, it's, we're going to start with the champion. Well, what, what would happen if we just did the champion? And yeah. the answer is that that's actually what we're going to do. Yeah. That's actually what we have to do, given the nature of kind of how we sell. That's so interesting. So again, I think, do we overcomplicate things? Oh, yeah. And do we sometimes get down a kind of a, an intellectual exercise? Because we know this thing is important. We know we're supposed to do it. We know, you know, we're ticking the boxes. We don't want someone to come up and go, where's the personas? But I think instead, sometimes I think we got to back up and say, we can't do everything. So we've got to put some hierarchy on stuff. And, and, you know, it's not to say that we never need personas, but what we need is actionable persona work, right? So, so we need to understand what we're going to do with that stuff before we embark on a big exercise to go do it. Yeah, because one of the questions I've really wanted to ask you is kind of linked to this. And it's about kind of the skills you think marketeers are going to need to compete in the future to do their jobs well. And I have I have lots of thoughts around marketing as a job is actually picking what not to do. You know, you've only got a limited set of time resources. So it's almost like, you know, what do I decide to put down? And if you're good at that, you'll probably do OK. But I'd love to get your thoughts on it. It's so true, though. Like, I so agree with that because, you know, we 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 have very limited resources. We have very limited time. We have limited budget. We have limited people. And and, and there's so many things we could be doing. And, and I actually think that this ability, like the best skill you can develop as a marketer is the ability to just back it up a little bit, widen the aperture and say, and say, what's working? Can we maximize what's working? Like even just that. Yeah. <laughs> With the more senior I got as a, as a marketer, um, it, like if I look at the way I did stuff, you know, in my first couple of VP marketing jobs versus my last couple of VP marketing jobs, my first couple of VP marketing jobs, I'd come in, I was trying to do everything perfect. I'd be building these beautiful marketing plans. I'd be like investigating all this new stuff. We'd be running all these experiments. And then I look at what I was doing in my last couple of VP marketing jobs when I was super senior is I'd come in and I'm like, all right, what works here? And people would say, well, you know, we get an awful lead, a lot of leads from doing webinars. And I'm like, well, can we just keep running more webinars until we can't run anymore? And everybody go, yeah. And it's like, if we doubled the webinars, would we double the leads? And everybody goes, yeah, we do it. And we do. And we're like, well, that was easy. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of, you know, so at the beginning, I was like, what are the right things to do? And whatever, whatever. And at the end, it was like, well, let's just look at what's working and start there. And we're going to max out everything that works. And when we run out of that, then we're going to look at the new stuff. Because what I've learned across my career is there's only a handful of things that work. Let's just put our foot right on that. I don't care if trade shows aren't cool, but we're getting a lot of leads from trade shows. So let's do trade shows. Like, <laughs> you know, and instead, I think we like to chase the shiny new thing, right? We're a bit like, ooh. Everybody is, uh, you know, everybody's got a podcast. We should have a podcast. How come we don't have a podcast? And maybe you should have a podcast, but but only after you've maxed out all the leads, you, all the lead channels, you know, work. <laughs> Do you think, though, that comes from a pressure of like being seen to be busy and doing all the things? And like, there's this whole growth hacking thing, obviously, that everyone's like, oh, there'll be one tactic that if we find it and no one else does it, we'll get, you know, a million leads. 
Yeah. Which is, which is bull crap really. Right. Like, like, I mean, like the thing that drove me so crazy when, when growth hacking first sort of came around is um, I felt like, I felt like the growth hackers were really into lying with numbers, which which is kind of a not nice thing to say. But a lot of the articles I read was, you know, how we increased our conversion rate by 9,000%. And it's like, but if your conversion rate was really, really crappy. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, this, this, I see this on LinkedIn all the time and I'm like, tell us what the actual numbers are, not the percentages. It's so impressive I'd hear the number. <laughs> like, I don't care about the percent. <laughs> so there's that. Um, and I do think we we as marketers... Like we know that, you know, occasionally a new channel comes out and it's hot for a period of time and it really works. And then everybody jumps into it and then it works less. And so I think there is this temptation that if we're early to a channel, we might be able to get some real movement there, you know, versus coming to that channel later. But, um, and we worry about that. But my experience has taught me that rarely does it matter if we're early or late. Like it just, it it all kind of works the same. What matters more is what works for your particular case. And looking at what other people are doing isn't gonna, isn't gonna answer the question, what should we do? I bounced around a lot. So, you know, my first job where I ran marketing we were doing a very specific set of things and we did a lot of, we did a lot of events and events worked really well for us. We did webinars, which worked really well. Um, and we did email cause we had, we had big email lists. And so those were our three things and we smashed it. We grew really fast. It was amazing. We got acquired. I ran marketing at the big company for a while. It was great. And then, then after a couple of years of board, I bounce out, I go to the next startup. And so I think I'm pretty hot stuff, right? Cause <laughs> I, you know, the last place I was at, we were rocking to the moon and blah, blah. And I know the playbook. I'm just going to come in and run the playbook. Well, next company, really different. So one was we didn't have a big email list. So we had a teeny weeny email list and you can't do anything with the teeny weeny email list. <laughs> so that's the first thing you learn. And then, and then they were a different kind of product in a different market and there weren't good events and events just weren't a thing. Um, and then our, the people we were going after just didn't go to webinars. Like we ran webinars and they stank. Yeah. The playbook thing again is something that Uh, annoys me quite a lot and I think you see it a lot more in agency side where an agency says like this has worked for all of our clients and we'll just come in and implement this and you're there like I know this won't work for us because I've I've tried it or I've seen it or you know I get the context and I, I think there's also kind of a movement towards like organizations and brands copying each other so we all end up in this little echo chamber and it it i and this kind of leads on to one of my questions, actually, with about consumers kind of, do you think they're becoming a bit immune to positioning? And I mean this more in terms of like purpose-led positioning and obviously in light of everything that's happened, Black Lives Matter, and there's been some really good responses by brands, but there's also been some kind of um, hollow, shall we say, responses. And do you think consumers are just a bit like, you all look the same and you're all kind of saying things in the same way? Oh, I do think consumers absolutely like buyers look at vendors and say they're all the same and I can't tell the difference. Yeah. Here's where I think here's where I think we're at right now, but this is where the opportunity is. Is it used to be 
um, you know, if I roll it back 15 years, it used to be if you, if you wanted to buy, particularly if you're buying for a business, right? So in B2B, if the purchasers didn't have any information, like if they wanted to buy software, they could look at all the vendors' websites and that's about it. And, you know, and eventually if they wanted to get more information, they had to call the vendor and the vendor held all the cards and the, the vendor told you all the stuff, right? So you had to get into a sales process to learn what was what. And what you were getting was this super biased vendor version of the truth, right? So then, you know, fast forward 15 years and now we got review sites, we got ranking sites, we got, you know, we got social media and all these other places where we, we as buyers can go get all this information, right? So I don't have to talk to the vendor and, and the data shows we, we don't talk to vendors until we're the last mile practically, like until we really narrow down a short list, then we'll call the vendors and, and you know, the last 30% we'll do with the vendor. Now, here's the thing though, and, and we've been talking about this in marketing forever, but here's the thing. Think about it from a customer's perspective. My boss comes to me and says, April, we, we got to buy a CRM. We've never had a CRM before, but we got to buy a CRM. You go, go find us one. So I'm the champion in the account now, right? So I got to go, oh, geez, this is my job. I got to go make the short list and make a choice here. And I don't want to get fired. So I want to make a good choice. So I Google it. I go on all these review sites. And what do I see? A whole bunch of vendors that look exactly the same, right? So I, I've got this quadrant. There's 9,000 people in the upper right quadrant. And I'm looking at them and I'm like, okay, well, Salesforce seems to be the big one here, but we can't afford that. So they're off, right? But then how do I rank the rest of them? I don't know. Like I'm on G2 Crowd. Does that actually solve my problem? It doesn't. There's a thousand tick boxes. I line them up. Everybody looks the same. I can't tell the difference. Can't tell the difference. And so I believe that right now we are in a situation where buyers are drowning in information but they are absolutely starved for insight. There is nowhere for them to go to help to figure out the market. Mm, that's interesting. So what's interesting about this is if you look at the data, so there's been a bunch of research studies on this, like what do, what do business buyers actually want in a purchase process? What they want is insight in the market, not about your product. They want to know what are the differences between the different approaches? Like, are there different approaches to this problem? And how should I make a short list? Like, what should I pay attention to? And what shouldn't I? What should my purchase criteria be? And so as vendors, I think we have a unique opportunity right now to be able to come in and help customers draw a picture of the market and say, look, like we're in the CRM business, we, you know, we, and, and we're specifically oriented towards SMB. And here's what we see. We see a bunch of vendors that are enterprise CRM and you shouldn't pick them because they're too complicated. Your salespeople won't use it. The UI is terrible and it costs way too much money. So eliminate those ones. And here's, here's what we mean by that. Eliminate those ones. And then there's ones that are like, not ready for prime time, like you're, you know, your mid-sized business, you don't want to go with a free CRM because here's the problems with that. There's no support. Um, they don't, they don't let you model a funnel. There's a whole bunch of things. It doesn't integrate to your marketing stuff. So you don't want those. So you should eliminate those too. And, and here's the kind of vendors over there. They're fine for someone else, not for you. And so, 
And then you've got the mid-market vendors and the mid-market vendors split into two. I'm making this up now, right? <laughs> They're split into two categories and there's ones that are oriented towards complex deals and ones that aren't. So if you need a lot of funnel stuff, you should pick them. But if you don't, you should pick us. It's about the clarity. And we don't do that. We come in and we say, let me show you the demo. I got a thing. I got a thing. I got a thing. I got a thing. I got another thing. I got another thing. What do you think? You want to buy? And the customer's sitting there going, what's the context? Yeah. And so I think we have an opportunity to do that. Like, and I think, I believe that really good, high-performing companies and high-performing sales teams, you know, with marketing's help, do that. So th what they do is they give the buyer clarity on how to make decisions. And sometimes that clarity leads the buyer to say, you know what, you're not the right thing for me. Something else is. And we that's good because they're going to turn on us anyway, or they're going to waste all my salesperson's time trying to close this person. It's not a good fit. So what it does is it helps clarify, but for the good fit ones, it accelerates the deal. Because now I'm like, okay, I get it. I know how to make a shortlist. I know how to make this. And I can go and explain it to my boss. Why'd you pick those guys? Oh, I picked it because of this. I think that's our opportunity. And, and again, you might think your product is just like everyone else's. It's, it isn't. People are picking you for a reason. If you can articulate that to your best fit customers, come in and say, look, the market splits out like this. And here's why. Here's the kind of, here's the kind of customers that want to pick us. And here's why. You're going to make a ton of money. I completely agree. That almost like takes us full circle back to the question of like, is the market saturated with too many people? And it's like, yes, in a way, but you can navigate it. Like the thing is, is I can't answer that question if you're brand new, right? If you've just mm. launched your thing into the market, maybe you don't have anything, right? Maybe you don't have a differentiator. Maybe there isn't a group of customers that want to pick your stuff. But if you've got a certain amount of traction and you can see the patterns and who loves your stuff and why, then you got something you can optimize around. Yeah, no, that that's brilliant. Well, that, just thank you so much for your time. That was a personally an extremely fascinating chat, and I've taken, I've made notes to take back to work this afternoon. So our biggest thing, like we 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 basically a software dev house, and our biggest problem is that everyone's a software dev house doing digital transformation, and digital transformation means nothing really it's you know a coin that's been robbed too many times and it's lost all meaning so it is that kind of like why us why would you pick us but and think about that right like the digital transformation it's such a massive market such yeah. a massive market and there are so many sub markets in that right yeah. like so um, you know, that you could peel off and say, you know what, like digital transformation is a big thing. There's all kinds of vendors that do that. But if you need these three specific things, we're the only game in town. You know, it's yeah. kind of like if I was trying to position myself as just a marketing consultant, there's a thousand million billion marketing consultants. <laughs> but if what you want is somebody that really understands positioning for B2B tech companies, the I'm person. the only gal anybody knows. <laughs> yeah, we, we're kind of getting that. We call it like a, where we do really well is legacy transformation clients. So they're people who been around before the dot-com bubble, legacy tech, you know, heritage brands. They've got a lot of like stakeholders who are very kind of old school IT. And that's where we, and we know, like you can see in our customer base, 
the, that's who we attract, that's who we close. So that's my big project at the moment. The more open you are about that, right? Which which takes some guts. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. It, it takes some guts to say, we're, you know, we're the legacy transformation people. Because what you'll get is like the senior executive team will say, whoa, wait, hang on there. Well, you know, if a, if a juicy deal outside of that yeah. showed up, we'd still want to do that, right? And, and so here's how, you, like, you got to have some guts to make the leap and say, look, if a juicy deal comes to us, fine, we'll do it. And yeah. yes, this positioning might repel a couple of those potential deals. But what it is going to do is it's going to suck in all these ones that we know we can smash. We know yeah. we're a good fit for, we know, and we're going to spend our marketing and sales energy trying to get those kind of deals. It doesn't mean like if a one pops up, we're not going to say, no, sorry, we don't do you. Although you may decide to do that because you're trying to double down on this sector and you don't know if this one's going to work. But um, but it does take some guts because in order to say yes to some stuff, you kind of got to say no to some stuff. And yeah. that's, that's scary. It always feels scary. Yeah, so if if you're interested in this positioning stuff, so so one thing is like everything I know about how to get this done, I wrote down and put it in a book and it costs like 10 bucks, you know. So so if you wanted to do the deep dive on the, on this stuff, I would suggest you start there. Um, my website's aprildunford.com. I'm April Dunford on Twitter. And th those are two places you can find me. Um, but yeah, I would suggest the book is a good place to start if you want the if you want the the gory details of how to get it done. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you want to leave us a rating and or a review, that would be fantastic. It just means I know you're enjoying it and the algorithms also know you're enjoying it. So recommend the podcast to more people. So do let us know what you think. As I said at the beginning, we have a newsletter. You can find it on Substack, thebrave.substack.com. And also we are on the uh, social medias as well. So Twitter, Instagram, all of that kind of stuff at The Brave Listen. And finally, if you ever want to get in contact with me, I love hearing from people. Uh, you can contact me directly on hello at bethanvincent.com. I look forward to hearing from you and I look forward to speaking to you in the next episode.